I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors. Today, I'm interviewing Brett Baer, best-selling historian and Fox News anchor, on his new bestseller, To Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment. The book came out on October 10, 2023. And we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on October 20th, 2023. Enjoy. Megan, are we close? Here comes our special guest, Brett Bear. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I want to tell you what an amazing guy Brett Bear is. He was supposed to do a program in Dallas last night, but because he had to be in Washington with all the stuff going on, he took the last flight out last night to get in at 1 a.m. to Dallas so he could be here for this breakfast this morning. Thank you, Brett. Well, it's great to be here. You know, Talmadge is very persuasive. Uh, but it's always great to be in this room. I've been here before. It's just so special. Harlan Crow. Um, wow. He kind of does things right, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, it's good to be here, though. And um, obviously, I had to stay for the President's Oval Office address last night and coverage of that. And we can talk about that, and I'll take some questions afterwards um, as uh, as we get, get through this, and I'll try to answer fair, balanced, and unafraid, as I can. Yeah. I suspect some people might want to talk about that a lot more than George Washington, but we're going to talk about George Washington first, at least. So, Brett, you've now authored many books, uh, all of them New York Times bestseller. This one debuted at number four, so tell your friends all about it. Now, I will tell you, I've done programs with Brett on all of his books. They're wonderful books. He and his collaborator write terrific history. It's, it's easily readable. It's fun. It's interesting. So kudos to you for turning out such great products. Thank you. So your first three books were on 20th century presidents, mm-hmm. Eisenhower, Reagan, and FDR. Your next book was on a 19th century president, Grant. And now your new book is on an 18th century president, George Washington. So what's inspired you to go backward in time? Yeah. In the subjects you choose. So, you know, as we've talked before, uh, this was a labor of love. I found this history love in that first book about Dwight D. Eisenhower called Three Days in January. And I tried to look at a moment that was overlooked in history. uh, And that was the farewell address uh, before, three days before uh, Kennedy and his inauguration. That process, and that one took three and a half years. I just got addicted to and finding these nuggets of history and kind of putting it together in this quilt of, of the narrative so that you put the reader in the room. Um, I just, I thought it was great. So then we kind of plotted along, did a Reagan in Moscow, three days in Moscow, FDR, Churchill and Stalin, three days at the brink. So there you had the cold war, uh, covered. The Three Days at the Brink was kind of the Star Wars trilogy. We went back to the beginning of the Cold War. Um, and then Ulysses S. Grant, the, the soda straw look at the moment is his presidency that is largely overlooked. A lot of people think about him as, as the general, but his presidency was really consequential for holding the country together and preventing us from falling into a second civil war. The soda straw moment in this book, and I thought it was important to go back to the founding because I truly believe, Talmadge, that that our history is getting forgotten, especially with our kids. And I write these books in a readable way that ideally our generation and younger can find something that they say, wow, I know something more about who we are and how we were founded. This narrative, this soda straw narrative, is a look 
after the Revolutionary War, the British are defeated, and the country is actually falling apart. People don't remember this, but our states are going after each other. We're held loosely under the Articles of Confederation that stitch us together, but it's not working. And we're fighting each other, uh, fighting tax collectors. There's really some rebellions in different states. And at that moment, there are a lot of people that say, forget this. Let's just go back to British rule. Uh, that's when the Constitutional Convention is called in May of 1787 in Philadelphia. And they tap the guy that was heading up the Revolutionary War, George Washington, to be the head of it. Through four months of sweltering heat of Philadelphia, they hammer out this document. They rip up the Articles of Confederation. They start from scratch and they come up with the U.S. Constitution. And for all the back and forth about it, they get to common ground and figure it out. It then gets ratified, which is also a miracle uh, because of, you know, getting it across the finish line. And obviously then George Washington becomes the first American president. I argue without George Washington, that man, that time, we would not be sitting here today. We really wouldn't. No doubt about that. And of course, you've researched and written about over two centuries of American history. And in all your books, obviously, the common denominator is we're dealing with a divided country, but never, maybe never more divided than we are now. As a history lover and historian yourself, does what you know about the past give you any hope for the present and future and the division we have in our country now? Yes, actually. And, and that's actually why I like looking back at the past like, like I have. You know, if anything, this is a very divided country. And, I, you know, you just have to look at my Twitter or X feed and, and uh, it can be a dark place uh, depending on the day. Um, you know, Bob says, you're so in the tank for Trump. And then Sally says, you hate Trump so much. And I feel like saying, Bob, meet Sally. Sally, meet Bob. <laughs> you guys, you guys work it out. But um, I do feel like it's a, you know, a divided time. But if you look in our history, we have been a lot of dark, dark places. And nothing darker than actually not getting to the starting line. And we almost fell apart it almost didn't happen. It almost collapsed numerous times uh, throughout this process. And so the hope I find, Talmadge, is that, you know, not that the founding of our nation was smooth. It, it was not. It was chaotic. It almost collapsed. But the fact that dissent is baked in the cake. It's who we are as a country. And we have to embrace that principle of dissent. But there's also union. And what Washington was able to do was mesh dissent and union and get finally to something. There are politicians that are trying to get something done. I know it doesn't seem like that when you look at the show and what we're doing, but I have this thing on my show called Common Ground where I bring a Republican and a Democrat together and talk about what they're working on, not about what they're fighting about. And arguably our most bipartisan president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, said that in his farewell address. He said, we need to find the things that we agree on and get them done first. And then we can argue about what we disagree on. And I just think looking back in the past helps us to deal with the present. Well, let's talk about George Washington's journey uh, leading up to and including the Constitutional Convention and his presidency. I mean, here he is. He'd been the commander-in-chief of our army eight and a half years to finally win the Revolutionary War. Presumably, he's on top of the world. We won the war. And yet, the federal government is governed by the Articles of uh, Confederation. And over that four-year period between uh, the end of the war and the Constitutional Convention, as you said, things are going downhill. What was Washington's mindset, having taken the country through this amazing military victory to see it all come close to falling apart so quickly? Well, he was upset about it. He wrote to uh, Madison at the time uh, about the chaos. You know, all George Washington really wanted to do was be back in Mount Vernon. He really wanted to go home to Martha. He That was his love of his life. Unfortunately, she burned 
the letters, the love letters between them, um, and we only have a few of them, but they clearly, according to his diaries and everything we read, had this really um, intense love affair. And he desperately wanted to go back to Mount Vernon every chance he got. So when he finally gets done with the Revolutionary War, he says, okay, this is it. I'm going to farm. I'm going to take care of uh, Martha's children who he adopted, Jackie and Patsy. And this is fun. And then he gets tapped again to the Constitutional Convention. And he really doesn't want to go. He has rheumatoid arthritis. He says, I'm only going if we tear this up root and branch and, um, and start from scratch. And so they agree to do that. Uh, he makes the journey in a, in a carriage up to, um, up to Philadelphia and it's, it's rainy and he's hurting and he gets there and nobody really is there. And he says, wait a second, I just came from Mount Vernon. You guys couldn't get here on time. Uh, and so he's upset about that, but he, it came to every time he was tapped, he said, yes, he served. And that's the amazing thing about Washington is that every time he goes into something and says, listen, I might not be the best person for this, or I might not be, you know, who, who is the person that needs to make this happen. But in every case, he was the indispensable man and he was the person. And of course, he then gets tapped after this process to be the first president unanimously. And, um, you know, there's nobody writing him a note in the Oval Office desk you know, telling him what to do. There's no torch that's being passed to George Washington. He is the torch. And um, he creates this as he goes along. And it's pretty amazing if you look back then how much was set up in those early days about how the executive looks. Well, let's talk about the Constitutional Convention. Uh, at the outset, uh, he is chosen unanimously to be the chairman. It goes on for four months. Uh, Tell us the way he presided over the convention. You have a, a, a quote from uh, historian Douglas Freeman. His largest contribution was not his counsel, but his presence. So talk about his presence and how important that was to the convention. He didn't say a lot. He was um, this tall, brooding kind of figure. He was fairly quiet. Um, he wasn't the elite scholar of Thomas Jefferson. He wasn't the intellectual powerhouse of John Adams. Um, he wasn't the genius and kind of backslapper charisma of Ben Franklin. Um, he wasn't the intellectual rigor of James Madison. He definitely wasn't the fiery speaker of Alexander Hamilton. But he had this somber... Uh, presence that he was kind of this thoughtful person who listened first to all of the different arguments in the room and then would weigh in at the end. He didn't say much at the top, you know, as he's sitting in this giant chair at the front of the room. Um, he, he actually worked individual people that were fighting each other over big issues like states' rights versus federalism, stuff that we're facing today, uh, representation of big states and small states, what the executive was going to be called. Um, he worked those at dinners and after you know the convention through the day was working. And he was kind of a conciliatory figure that brought people together. Uh, it's interesting, the chair that he sits in at the front of the convention, he kind of sits up a little bit, and it's this wooden chair that's carved, and it's got a liberty pole and cap signifying liberty, and then it's got this sun. And by the way, if you go there, the chair is still there, and it's fantastic to go in Independence Hall and have this feeling like the ghosts of the past uh, are kind of ironing out the U.S. Constitution. I recommend going there uh, if you can see it. But this chair is sitting there, and Ben Franklin, as they're finally hammering out after four months and everyone's signing the U.S. Constitution, he says, you know, I've often looked at that chair and that sun carved in the chair and wondered if the sun was rising or the sun was setting. Uh, fortunately, the sun is rising because they really didn't know whether this thing was going to, you know, fall apart. Now, on page 200 of your book, you say, quote, those in the modern era who view the Constitution as written to be sacrosanct 
should realize that the deliberations that brought it into being were rife with dispute. So by saying that, Brett, are you taking a little dig at originalists uh, who interpret it as sacrosanct uh, from the very outset? No, I'm just saying that these men had faults, and they there was a lot of argument about you know, how things would go forward. Um, and they made mistakes and they conceded. You know, slavery was a big, big issue at the time. Uh, what doesn't get covered a lot is how much uh, they debated what to do about slavery in the Constitution. You know, it turns out that, um, you know, there is a document about liberty. And yet, you know, when counting slaves, it's three-fifths of a man to get to the representation of a state. So there was this dichotomy, this real problem with that, and it was a battle inside the convention. I just don't think we hear that about history. In fact, Washington, at the end of his life, you know, it takes him a long time uh, to kind of reflect, but I want to read this quote to you. Um, He was a slaveholder. He had dozens of slaves. He actually only had a 12 that were he inherited from his father, but Martha, in her previous marriage, she was a widow, uh, had about 100 slaves that worked on Mount Vernon, and he called it one of the most disappointing aspects of his life. Uh, he His thoughts about slavery evolved over time, in part because of his relationship with a guy named Billy Lee, who was his valet, over the course of 20 years. And so, thanks to to his influence, Washington uh, vows to stop all the sales and purchase of slaves and to no longer separate families. And here's what I wanted to read. In his final years, he expressed to a close colleague his deep regret over slavery. And this is the quote. He looked back on his life and confessed, the unfortunate condition of the persons whose labor I in part employ has been the only unavoidable subject of regret. In his will, he frees Billy Lee uh, and provides for the 122 slaves at Mount Vernon and makes sure that they're financially supported in freedom after uh, Martha's death. You, I just never heard that until we researched and found it. My point in saying that is not that that originalism is wrong. It's that we have to realize that these guys had faults and they knew it. And uh, they wanted to start the country, but they knew that the document had to be amended. Part of the deal about getting it across the finish line was that they would agree to do a Bill of Rights, obviously the first 10 amendments. There's 27 amendments to the Constitution. It evolves to this day, but it's very hard to do. At the end of the book, there is a a test of uh, the Constitution, the National Constitution Center two years ago, has groups of scholars that come in to take a look at the Constitution. What could be done differently? They say, rip it up and draw your own Constitution. And they've got progressive scholars on the left. They've got conservative scholars. And then they have libertarian scholars. Well, they, believe it or not, come back to the document. And they say, this actually is where we need to go. Now, each one has tweaks that want, they want to make. The libertarian scholars say every page should end with, and we mean it. Um, <laughs> that's actually what they said. The progressive scholars, the progressive scholars say the electoral college doesn't work, that we should do ranked choice on elections. And the conservative scholars say that the executive branch should be more clearly defined so that you don't have abuse of executive orders. Washington actually had uh, eight executive orders. Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had 3,216 executive orders. Right now, President Biden is at about 150 um, executive orders. So they saw that as a a glaring problem. All three groups thought that the Supreme Court should have 18-year term limit, not a lifetime term limit. Uh, But they saw that But my point in saying that is all three groups of scholars that have thought about this for a long time come back to the same document that's hammered out in May of 1787 in Philadelphia. And that is pretty incredible. If you think about a legal document, it is the greatest single legal document providing liberty to any country, any time, 
in the world. Now, as your book makes clear, the way we got that uniquely influential and wonderful document was because people on both sides were willing to compromise over the issues. And along the lines of what you just said, let's say all of a sudden today or next week, they said, we need to have a new constitutional convention. Do you think the American mindset today, where many people are anathema to the word compromise, they think it's a dirty word, is it even possible that we could have a new constitution with the necessary compromise it takes to get to a final document? No, I don't think that we could get there. Um, you know, Antonin Scalia was asked this question um, before his death about a constitutional convention, and he said, whoa, and said, you don't know what you would get if you got to that. Now, getting to a constitutional convention and opening that door requires a big hurdle, um, two-thirds of states, but it's um, it, it would be interesting to see where we'd end up. I think, so part of the reason about looking back to history is that we have um, together forgotten a lot about where we've been. And uh, I think that if we can tell the stories and make it come to life, that maybe it's a little bit um, more interesting for all of us to say, wait a second, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about that. Here's So I call them nuggets, you know, these nuggets, this little crackle that puts you in the room so that you kind of feel what they're feeling a little bit. You introduce to these different characters that you didn't really know that much about. You only saw them in a history book. Um, for example, so when President Washington takes office, he goes to New York and he is solo. He does not, Martha does not come. She's taking care of the grandchildren at Mount Vernon. But Washington really, really, it thinks that she is crucial to him and it, she is the closest confidant for him. And the beginning days are really chaotic because everybody is into this new government. They think it is, well, it's their government, we, the people. And so they show up in New York at the house where, you know, Washington is the chief executive and they just come in and they want to see Washington. And so everybody just files in and they talk to them and it's like Grand Central Station in there, nonstop people. Finally, they get a system, but he says, this is too much and I need Martha here. She was a big fan of seafood. And uh, so he conspires with his aide and says, can you write her a letter and say that we have shrimp and oysters every night here in New York. And so he writes this, Tobias Lear writes a letter back and says, tell Mrs. Washington that the seafood is fantastic here. And it's laid out every night in New York. And believe it or not, she comes soon thereafter. And it's the seafood that draws her in. So anyway, there's little nuggets like that, that uh, kind of paint, paint a different picture. Now, as president, Washington's vice president was John Adams, who David McCullough sanctified. And uh, as you say, quote, theirs was a case study in opposites. So how well did Washington and Adams get along? Did, how well did they work together? Give us the dynamics of that relationship. Yeah. Um, it wasn't uh, FDR Truman, uh, but it was... Um, Which means they never spoke to each other at all. At all, exactly. Uh, it, he, Washington's an interesting person. He doesn't hate anybody, it seems, uh, in, in all the research. He's kind of very affable. He kind of gets along with people. Um, Adams was much more uh, formal. He was much more an intellectual. Um, an example. So they're hammering out what the executive is going to be called. And, uh, and Adams really wants to give it a big title. So uh, he says he thinks it should be called President of the United States, His Highness, and Protector of the Rights Therein. It is this paragraph of title. And Madison turns to him and said, are you kidding me? We just left a monarchy. How are you going to call the guy who's heading this up His Highness? 
And uh, so they finally, Washington steps in and says, let's just call it the president. And um, that just gives you a sense of where his mindset is. But Adams is a patriot through and through, and Washington really admires that. So the biggest thing Washington does as president is step aside after two terms. That is the biggest moment because there was no prescribed term limits. And he says he is not indispensable and says it's time for the nation to move on. Um, And it's not just the Hamilton musical. I mean, it really happens. And he says, comes up with this farewell address, but he passes the torch. And at Adam's inauguration, uh, they're finishing up and Adam's walking out of the room says, uh, go ahead. And he, and Washington turns to him and says, no, you are now the president. You know, you go first through the door. So there was a mutual respect. Um, they weren't buddies that went to go get a beer. Well, two of the other leading characters during the Washington presidency who are all over the musical Hamilton are Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson was his Secretary of State, Hamilton is Secretary of the Treasury, and they didn't exactly get along. So talk about Washington's method of dealing with these two men who were basically constantly at war with each other. They were definite rivals, and they spoke about it openly. Uh, cabinet meetings were superheated. Um, you know, Washington's closest friend was Henry Knox, his Secretary of War. Uh, but as Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury, um, Edmund Randolph was the Attorney General. That's his cabinet. And they're very close, and they're all close advisors. But Hamilton and Jefferson were at each other's throat uh, and always kind of looking to undermine the other. Uh, Washington looks at it as a team of rivals, and each one he sees uh, a real glimmer of excellence. Um, So he puts up with some of the battles and lets it happen but then they get to a place where they hammer out what each place is going to look like. The Secretary of State with the State Department, the Treasury Department, and the system of finance that eventually becomes uh, what we see today. Well, the, it really came to a head in the famous Compromise of 1790, where we had two huge issues. One, where's the capital going to finally be located? And the other, what are we going to do with all these debts that were incurred by the states during the Revolutionary War. And and uh, Hamilton and Jefferson were on opposite sides of that, and yet a compromise deal was done. What's your perception of Washington's role in getting that deal done? Yeah, he essentially uh, shepherds it. He kind of um, goes between them and, and says, let's figure something out. But that, you know, leads to an excise tax of alcohol. And uh, soon after that, 1791, the Whiskey Rebellion happens. And there is an uprising of people that say, this is not fair. You're letting the big distillers have breaks and the small guys taking it on the chin. And it actually leads to the biggest development as he's president. He has to get a force to to step in and uh, mobilize and deal with some of these rebellions. Fortunately, as the force comes in to one of them, uh, everything kind of falls by the wayside and goes away. Uh, and years later, they would repeal that um, that excise tax uh, because it was so unpopular. But this is the fits and starts of figuring out how to get it done and how to do the early days. Now, you mentioned that uh, at the end of his second term, he makes a... a public statement that becomes known as his farewell address that per your Eisenhower book, Eisenhower sought to emulate in his farewell address. But talk about Washington's state of mind upon leaving the presidency and and what he wanted the country to be thinking about going forward. So you're right to say that um, the echoes of Washington's farewell address are in a lot of big-time speeches in our history, and first among them is Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address. It has that similar tone, that similar focus. You know, Eisenhower in his uh, farewell address says, again, 
let's work together on what we can do and, and argue later. It's not just the military industrial complex. He also is worried about the debt. He's worried about other big things. So in that address, Washington is as hard as it is to believe is amazingly prescient about our current situation. He is really concerned in his farewell address about partisanship and about political parties that are just starting. And he says um, this, he says about partisanship, a fire not to be quenched, it demands a uniform vigilance to prevent it bursting into a flame, lest instead of warming, it should consume. He thought that today's, you know, that basically it would be a failing of a great nation if political parties got too much power, and he called it a political mischief. I mean, you look today and where we are in political parties, I mean, that's pretty prescient. He also was concerned about the national debt and said, we cannot let the national debt get too high because it will overtake our ability to do things inside the nation. The other thing he was worried about was foreign entanglements. You know, the country should be concerned about what's happening abroad, but we should not be too entangled in other countries' business. Now, Fast forward, Teddy Roosevelt would take a different approach and more forward-leaning in his look towards foreign policy. But if you look at that farewell address, which, by the way, is read every February 22nd on the Senate floor for his birthday, uh, it still rings true today. And uh, I think, you know, if you look at that moment, as I said before, of him stepping down and that address, it really forms who we are as a nation. Peaceful transfer of power, which most times works. Now, only because <laughs> Brett said he was open to this, I now want to shift the conversation to today and obviously weave in any thoughts you think George Washington might have. But Brett, as I watched you on the news last night and all the stories about what's going on around the world and, and around our country, and I read a Wall Street Journal editorial this morning, Walter Gordon Mead said, it seems like the world is spinning out of control. And every night you get to report on a world that's spinning out of control. <laughs> Give us the, the private Brett Bear. What are you thinking as you t have to report all of these stories every night? Fortunately, there's really good wine. <laughs> that uh, you can have a glass or two after a long day. Um, it's, it is a busy time. It is a um, tough time. I think the world is in a very dangerous place. Uh, it's a tinderbox in a lot of places. I do think that, um, you know, no matter what you think about or what party you're a part of or what your ideology is, that some of our actions, uh, you know, you go back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, have signaled to some of our foes uh, some of our enemies, that maybe this is the time for them to step up and maybe this is the time for them to cause mischief. And I think that that has happened in some cases. Um, I mean, you get some of these stories where, you know, there's these all these countries working together, Russia, China, Iran, and it's almost like the Legion of Doom, you know, and we need the super friends. But it's uh, it is a time where we need leadership. We could use a Washington or two, and um, and that's really what I think the message is. You know, I, I got back from, I did this interview with the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and it took me a long time to get the interview. Uh, I knew he was going to be the center of the, the universe in that part of the world since he's only 38 years old, and obviously the, all the controversies surrounding the Saudis and, and their actions, but uh, I went over there, worked to get the interview and uh, told them, you know, if we're going to do it, it's going to be tough, but fair, but I'm not going to, you know, lay out the questions or I'm not going to hold back on what I talk about. So they eventually agreed. It took some time. When I got over there, uh, the, we thought going into the interview that he was going to do it in Arabic. And so I had a simultaneous translation set up, a guy in a box in the room. I had an IFB in my ear and I asked the first question and he answered in English. And then I answered the sec I asked the second question and he answered in English. And I said, this is happening in English. You know, this guy in the box is not needed, but 
I asked him everything, um, and in a, if you saw that interview, but one of the interesting things was that normalization question about Israel. And he came out of his shoes and said, we are really close. We're getting closer every day. We're concerned about the Palestinians, but we think this could be a major change to the face of the Middle East. The camera got off and he said, Brett, I need you to understand that this is going to change everything. And I think it's going to happen. We are really close. So then I get to the airport going back to Riyadh and I get a call from Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu who says, I need you to fly to New York and I want to respond to the Saudi crown prince. And so I changed my plane and I flew to New York and I landed at 8.30 in the morning and I sat down with Bibi Netanyahu at 11.30 a.m. And the first question I said, I understand you've seen this interview with the Saudi crown prince. What's your response? And he said, in the words of a very smart man in the Middle East, we're getting closer every day. And so he talked about that. And the camera goes off and he says, Brett, I don't think you understand. This is going to change the face of the Middle East. He said the exact same words that the Saudi crown prince had said. Well, obviously, Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah saw that interview, too. And I'm not saying that that's what caused it because this plan had happened a long time. Clearly, it had been calculated to have this attack. But it clearly factored in that they were getting ready to do this big normalization and Iran was having none of it. Um, So I just think that we're in a really tense spot. And there are leaders out there who are willing to go to the extra spot. But um, there's a lot of pushback that we're going to have to fight along the way. As I hear you tell that story, I said, man, you have a really dull life. (laughs) Nothing interesting ever happens in your life. That's the international situation. Let's talk about the national situation. You were talking a minute ago about the two political parties. In my mind, we really now have at least four political parties in that we have moderate Republicans and far-right slash Trump Republicans, and then we have moderate Democrats and far-left Democrats, and obviously they can't seem to agree on anything. Give us, and of course now we have this rising third party, uh, no labels that may well get on the ballot in almost every state and produce a candidate, an alternative besides Biden and Trump. Give us your perspective on on the parties and 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 particularly headed toward that 2024 election. Yeah, I mean, I would have guessed between us, I would have said uh, six months ago that I didn't think that either President Biden or former President Trump we're going to be the party nominees. I really just had this feeling that it was going to change in some way, shape, or form. Now, uh, that feeling has subsided. And uh, I think it's more than likely that each party will have those two standard bearers, President Biden and former President Trump. Um, As hard as it is to believe, (laughs) former President Trump might be the only person who could beat President Biden, and President Biden might be the only person who could beat former President Trump. I mean, we're in a Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump situation. I don't know how the the country is going to deal with the constant cases and how they fall out. You know, there's this plea deal with Sidney Powell down in Georgia, um, who has now agreed to testify against Trump uh, in that Georgia election case. I'm not sure the fallout. We have not seen um, uh, any diminishing of his polls or his money or his support all the way along. So I do think that he's still in the poll position, uh, clearly, in the Republican Party. Uh, the president continues to have you know moments on the world stage and here in the U.S. that really make even Democrats raise their eyebrows and say, whoa how can that happen? You know, like what's happening and, you know, walking up the stairs, he now goes up the short stairs in the air force one. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that worry about his age and the ability to, uh, not only lead the democratic party, but lead the country. So I don't think that that's finished yet. So I wish I could look into a crystal ball. I just know this, that Politics will be the center of the universe, and I'm very happy to be in the seat that I'm in. 
You know, because I, that's really what I do. And I love the moment. I just can't tell you what it looks like yet. I can report on it along the way. Um, but I, I can't believe that there's not going to be another shoe that drops, whether it's one of these two men in some way, shape, or form, whether it is a third party, to your point, that suddenly takes off and gets fire. Harder for me to see that. I don't think like a Glenn Youngkin from Virginia is going to ride in on a white horse and suddenly have all the support. I just don't see it. So right now, it's going to be a really ugly, fascinating uh, election. And it's it's going to be something to cover. No doubt. Let's talk about your comment on President Biden. Of course, we all watch the news. We We see him slip and fall. We see him unable to complete sentences, so on and so forth. And the question is, who's running the country? Who's making the decisions here? And I'd like your insight on that, given that he appears to be so limited. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of people in the White House that have a lot of power. Um, His national security advisor, uh, Sullivan, actually has a lot of power on foreign policy. Um, But you know, from everything we hear inside the White House, the president is still the decider in uh, in George W. Bush uh, vernacular. Um, he is the guy that makes the decision. He is not the guy that really articulates it the best. Um, you know, that speech last night, I was ta- talking to somebody. It was a lot of Ukraine. It was a lot of Ukraine in that speech. And that speech could have been delivered, you know, 400 days ago. We're on day almost 600 of the Ukraine war. And because the president has not articulated or spoken from his soapbox about the atrocities that have happened to Ukrainian children and the stuff that's happened in schools and and buildings in Ukraine, it's a little tougher. And and the train started to leave the station because the Americans started to say, "Wait, wait a second, why are we doing this? What's, you know, Tell me why this is in our interest. Now, some people have talked about it, that we haven't had U.S. troops on the ground. We're diminishing Vladimir Putin. Uh, They're fighting for freedom. If you give him this, he's still going to take more. But you haven't heard it that much from the president of the United States. So I wondered whether this speech kind of was just added on to the situation in Israel to take a part of the emotion that we've been seeing and the depravity on the ground and use it to try to pitch Ukraine funding. I think he, he weaved it in, you know, Hamas and Putin, uh, but I was struck by that as I left that speech. Well, on the one hand, I'm glad to hear you say that he is the decision maker. We kind of hope that's true of the president of the United States. But to use George W. Bush's word, is he the strategist? <laughs> is he the one who's really formulating the policy that ultimately leads to the decisions? I think there's a lot of folks that have uh, hands in that. Uh, Ron Klain used to be, uh, you know, running the train when he was um, White House chief of staff. Um, I think Susan Rice has a lot of uh, power. So it is the old Obama team that kind of has a lot of hands in in the cookie jar. What's your read on Jill Biden's influence? Um, I don't think she, on policy, she has too much, but she is definitely a factor. Um, But it's not a similar first lady situation to Hillary Clinton. But she's definitely driving as far as re-election and wanting to keep going. You know, you wonder if, um, you know, you wonder if his heart is completely in it from the beginning. I've tried to interview Joe Biden since he won in South Carolina as a candidate, that primary in South Carolina. We have renewed our request for an interview every month since then. And we had an interview set up as Fox covered the Super Bowl and had the Super Bowl last time, um, but the White House didn't do it. So I am managing to get these big world leaders. I just haven't gotten our world leader to sit down for an interview. Thank you. Never mind. Uh, I want to open it to questions. Uh, What an opportunity. Yes, David. Thanks for... David, here we go. Thanks so much for making the trip. Sure. Um, So much about what you talked about Washington is about leadership. What do you see on all of the folks that have followed him as president of the United States? 
who has the most Washington-esque kind of leadership skills, uh, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, listen, I'm a big fan of Dwight D. Eisenhower. I think that he was largely overlooked as one of the great presidents. And um, we'll look back at the big things that he did in working across the aisle with Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn and getting like big, big, big things like interstate highways and, and huge pieces of legislation through. So I think he has echoes and obviously his farewell address, as I mentioned, um, has echoes of Washington's farewell address. I do think um, Reagan had some of those elements, but he was far more, uh, he was far better at communicating and that's what made him so powerful. Um, and listen, I do think that if you look at Washington, one of the things that comes through and the thread is that his ability to get people who were dissenting opinions to come together and figure out what are the things that they can agree on is something that you do see on Capitol Hill. You do see some of it, but you don't see it on a broad sense. We still are in the mindset of stirring up the base, stir up the pot, uh, get people fired up and emotional, and that's how you get elected. Um, Until the great center of this country, which is really a lot of people, It's either center-right or center-left. For most part, the country is center-right. And until those people step up and say, this is not going to work for me, um, we're going to be doomed to kind of repeat what we've seen in recent elections. Yes, Mitchell, one of our sponsors. Back to the wine. I think it is a total mess, a total, total mess that could have been avoided. You know, um, it was unfortunate that they set up in order to get the Kevin McCarthy's uh, original gavel to set up that whole one person could move to vacate the, the chair, move to get rid of the speaker. Once that happened, you know, all chaos. And uh, Matt Gates, you know, led those eight folks. And it was like the dog that caught the car. You know, there was no other thing. Like they, okay, here we are. Now what do we do? You know, so there was no plan. And now you're in this place where right now I don't see Jim Jordan getting the numbers. There's going to be another vote this morning. I think there may be three votes today and they're just going to try to grind them down. But there are moderates are really PO'd that the original uh, effort out the gate was to um, put some pressure on them, including their wives and their families, which is not recommended um, because then it stiffens the resistance. And so you, you, you don't have enough numbers. And so Democrats are not moving off to try to make this work. They kind of enjoy the whole process like this, even though it's really bad for the country. You know, the president's asking for $105 billion. We can ask all day, but if you don't have a speaker of the house, you can't get anything done. This effort to empower the temporary speaker, the, Uh, Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry, uh, a lot of people have a problem with because they don't, they've never been there. And constitutionally, they question whether if he's a temporary speaker and he puts a bill into the registry, could anything that that bill did or said or the law that it becomes be then challenged in court because it's not really a Speaker of the House? We just have never been there. So, um, I think we're in for a long haul here is my bottom line. Yes, yes sir. Would you stand up, please, so we can hear the impressive range of American history knowledge. I mean, from Eisenhower back and all, and all these seminal moments in American history. <clears throat> how important, how would you rank the activities in January after the election in terms of being a seminal moment in American history? Was it really as important as some people think? Was it not? Uh, was it really an attack on the Constitution? And and how would you rank it in terms of, was it a seminal moment or wasn't it? Yeah. It was a very dark day. 
having covered it. When I was covering it and anchoring that day, uh, I was finishing up my last book, To Rescue the Republic and the Crisis of 1876, which is Ulysses S. Grant uh, trying to get the country back together. And in that, they have people standing on the the desks inside the house chamber, like saying blood will flow and like arguing with each other to the point where they're almost taking up arms. So it just gave, gave me a little perspective of that versus that. I, I think it was a really dark day for our country. I think it was um, really tough. I think the intent was to stop the, um, the legal election uh, and, and the process but it didn't happen. So I think there was hope in the end of that, that, you know, they didn't go home. They didn't stop. They went back and finished the electoral college, um, uh, certification. And, uh, so in that sense, I, I think it'll be remembered in the history books, um, for what it was. But again, if we look back in our history, we have been many, many more places, where our country almost fell apart. Uh, so I think that that perspective is important. And then, of course, there was the time the country did fall apart during the Civil War. And I'm personally hoping your next book's on Abraham Lincoln because he's my favorite. Next question. Uh, yes, Kyle. There you go. Thank you. So going back to the the constitutional convention and hearing you talk about the, you know, there's three different schools of thought and partisan kind of, you know, thought processes, you know, in this country, we don't really have the opportunity for a public referendum. You know, we hear a lot in elections that this election is a referendum on a specific topic and so on and so forth. Was it a, was it a conscious choice from, from the constitutional convention and the party, you know, schools of thought therein to exclude that? And if we did have that, do you think it would be a value? Because you look at things like, you know, Brexit, and there's different schools of thought even within the value of having it. Yeah, so that would be more a pure democracy um, in different ways. Uh, and I think the founders thought that uh, a, representative, a representative republic was more feasible um, dealing with the population. And I don't know what would happen if we were more a pure democracy. I mean, we have a hard pe time getting people to vote. Um, and who shows up depends on how that election goes. I mean, think about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. You know, she's running against Representative Crowley there, who is a longtime guy. He was talked about to be speaker on the Democratic side. And um, she's a bartender. And she's just decides to on a flyer run for congress well because it was an off year off state election only 8000 people show up for that election well he loses in a squeaker because he didn't campaign he thought it was a no brainer he was he thought it was done um now they made their choice AOC becomes a congresswoman. Arguably, she's very well known now, and she's probably going to run for Senate at some point. But it's just interesting that who shows up, how engaged they are, um, depends on where the, the outcome of that is. To your question, I think that they kind of structured it that way uh, to make sure that it was fair and representative. Um, I don't know how it would work today. Yes, Lane. Oh, you, how about just scream it out and I'll, I'll say what it stand is. Stand up and speak. Yeah. What would I think about, uh, Washington would say about the wide open border and lack of sovereignty. I think that um, he would be appalled. It was in his farewell address, protecting the border. Um, I think arguably that is one of the biggest problems that our country is currently facing. And, um, you know, I thought it was going to be a big issue in 2022. We thought going in that that was going to really make a difference. It turned out it didn't. And to your point, uh, threat to democracy was higher on the polls than, than the immigration situation. But now 
what we see of, about who is coming across the border, how many folks are coming across the border, and what that looks like, I think it's not only untenable for the states along the border, but uh, untenable for these other places that are now feeling the, the hit. New York, Massachusetts, you know, these places that were sanctuary states and sanctuary cities are not sanctuary anymore. You know, they just don't want to be because it's untenable. So I think this becomes a bigger issue in the election coming up. And I think Washington would be really PO'd about it. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, most elections come down to how you feel at your kitchen table, how you feel about things in your family and your finances, your economy. So I think that most times that that's what ends up happening. But I think the emotion around the border issue is big enough to be really top dog. Um, that's how visceral it is now. Um, now, foreign policy usually doesn't factor in that big in an election. Unless you look at 2004, where you had, you know, a terrorist attack or Osama bin Laden putting out a video or Zawahiri putting out a video. I mean, it became a safety election. And I think that because things are so uncertain around the world, uh, we can't look into that crystal ball yet. Yes, sir. Here's the microphone for you. Bill Wallace, Jamie Dimon said in the Wall Street Journal, "These are the this is the worst time we've ever experienced." Speaking from a worldview, and that Capitol Hill needs to come together to deal with this. But what do you see the people that we've elected doing with the Middle East? Doing with the fact Ukraine was number one getting the weapons. Now Israel's number one getting the weapons. Ukraine's number two. And the Russia's third minion, China, is now open to, the China, open to take Taiwan. What are you picking up? What do we need to do right now? And what do you think they will do? Back to the wine. <laughs> um, I, I think, I think uh, there are people... There are adults in the room up on Capitol Hill who have been around the block in foreign policy who are talking about things, working across the aisle, trying to get these uh, funding packages through, trying to get uh, support through. Um, but to my point earlier, I do sense that uh, weakness is provocative. And when what happened in Afghanistan and how it happened really did affect the world stage and how um, other leaders looked at it. I think. And just listening to MBS off camera kind of talk about the world, uh, he sees a lot of those people empowered to act in a bad way towards the U.S. Uh, and I would not be surprised if China within the next two years does move on Taiwan. And uh, I think that, you know, if we are not making the case publicly uh, about why we're supporting Ukraine. Imagine making the case that you're doing this for uh, microchips in Taiwan. I mean, I, I don't know what we as a country will do in that case. Uh, how far will we go? You know, part of this $105 billion is is also for Taiwan. Um, but there's, there's a lot of people who wonder, you know, where the decision-making is. On the flip side, you know, the country as a population doesn't want to get involved in a lot of other things. After 10 years in Iraq, I mean, I went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I, I plugged in with special forces, and I was um, on the ground a lot uh, reporting, and there was a lot of bad things that happened, and, and we lost a lot of people and treasure. And so there's this feeling inside the country that we, we don't want to do that. But the flip side is, if we don't step up, um, the world becomes more chaotic unless the U.S. is in a leading position. How many of you have not had your book signed yet? Not okay. Many? Yeah, I can do it right uh, after. Yeah, when the program's over, 
Brett's going to go out there. Uh, let me, uh, before we close, I want to thank our sponsors. I meant to do this on the front end, but it's the sponsors who make these events possible. Obviously, the the Crow Holdings and the Crow Foundation who make this incredible venue uh, and, and organize it so well. Uh, it wouldn't happen and uh, incredibly important sponsor for us. And so glad to participate with them. Uh, the Shackelford Law Firm, my managing partner, John Shackelford, is here. Uh, Summit Financial Benefits, Dale Young and his company. Uh, USI, Perry, we're so glad you and David support this. Uh, Overton Partners Architectural Firm, the leading sports architects in the world. Swinnerton Construction, haven't seen Jeff Blakely. I don't know if he's here. Uh, PwC, uh, SMU Cox School of Business, Alumni Association, Security National Bank, and Malone Mitchell, uh, thanks to all of you for your sponsorship for making this possible. This has been one of the most informative discussions I've ever been a part of. Brett, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Brett Baer's biography of George Washington is a smooth read that tells the life story of the man who was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen in a way that should resonate with people of all ages. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.